All right. Well, it's good to be back. Thank you again for Thursday night um, for uh, uh, being so kind to me. I was uh, I was telling my wife when I when I drove home. I said, "Hun, if it wasn't for First Thessalonians five, I probably would have run out of the building on Thursday night." But I know that First Thess five exhorts the church to. Um, Diligent, those that diligently labor, esteem them highly because of their work and uh, to take time out to honor them. But anything you heard that was good, where those men obeyed that passage to do that, it was only the Lord's work in me, all by His glory and His grace. So it was like being at your own eulogy, which was difficult. Um, but uh, I was very humbled by it and um, just grateful God's used me, frankly. So if you would, please open your Bibles back to uh, the book of Acts. Acts. Chapter 2, we are back in our exposition of Acts. Let me ask you a question as we begin. I, why don't you, you guys can give me some answers. If, if you're new here to this kind of uh, dynamic on a Sunday morning, um, when we go over and hear the main message, big church they called it when I was growing up, and we go, hear Pastor Jerry, that is him heralding the word and it's more of a monologue. Um, and here I'll monologue a lot too, but if there's things on your heart, there's questions, there's things that come to your mind, um, we can have some more dialogue in here. The purpose of a fellowship group is to give us time to talk about these things. So don't ever feel bad if I say something and you're like, uh, uh, Pastor, and I'll stop if I can see you and I'm not too impassioned about something. Uh, I'll stop and, uh, and uh, call on you and we'll talk about it. So let me ask you a question as we begin. If... if uh, if someone was to come to you and you got in a conversation with them about um, local church life, how a church is supposed to function, how it's supposed to work, how it's supposed to run, how, what, what, govern, what governing principles, um, and as you got in that conversation with them, um, you began to realize that, that maybe the, the way they think about church life or what it ought to be or the church they attend seems to have drifted. Where would you go in the Bible to help them get some, get some parameters for showing them why they've drifted or how they've drifted? What, what passages would you guys go to? Where would you take them? Yeah, Nick. Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. Why Ephesians 4? That's a great one, by the way. Because of the self mandate for the standards of what a church should be pursuing and its uh, members and uh, what focus it should have. Yeah, it's really probably one of the premier passages, particularly verses 11 to 16, all the way up at 7 really, about how the church is supposed to function. So yeah, that's a good one. Where else? Where else would you take them? Yes? Yeah, that's a good one. What where our role is to be in encouraging one another and stimulating one another to love and good deeds. And then there's the warning in that passage, a dangerous thing to fall into the hands of the living God if you're doing things incorrectly and you abandon what God says. Yep. What else? Somebody say something? Somebody say... Acts 2. Acts 2? Oh, thank you so much. Jimmy, brilliant. Just brilliant. <laughs> I happened to be in Acts 2 this morning, and that's where I would go as well. <laughs> thank you, brother, for that. Well... One of my favorite historical heroes, many of you probably know his name, it's a man by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones was a, was a great preacher, um, really through the early 1900s, into the 1950s, 60s, 70s. Um, but he, in the middle of the 1950s is when he was really on display um, helping the church in England. He had a church in England, um, in London particularly, and helping the church at large discover its identity again. And, and if you know anything about Martin Lloyd-Jones' ministry, he was regularly called to preach and teach. By the way, has any, has, how many of you have read Ian Murray's biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Okay, you should get it and read it. Five, there are five of you. The other, however many of you there are. In, he has a, a to put the two volumes into one in the newest edition. It's Martin Lloyd-Jones' biography. It's excellent. But if you read about Martin Lloyd-Jones' heart and his life and, and what burdened him most is he had seen the church in England drift. You had, you had all of these people showing up to buildings and all of these people coming and saying they were worshiping and so many people and so many people coming to buildings were dishonoring the Lord. There was hypocrisy and immorality and church leaders were falling. And he was just grieved. And, and so he spent a lot of his ministry really trying to speak to the church about how they should go about doing church and what church should look like and how it should function and its origin. And obviously he didn't appeal to his opinions. He didn't appeal to what he thought was best. He, he took them back to the Word of God. And in his exposition of Acts 2, you can read it in his volume, his commentaries on Acts... I just love one sentence that he says that, that, just, that helps us capture his heart. And frankly, it captures my heart and what I think is so significant. Back to Martin Lloyd-Jones. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says this, There is a real confusion today about Christianity and about the Christian church. And then what he, he describes a confusion. He says she is confused about her nature, her task, and her message. This is the great tragedy. He would have viewed that as the great tragedy of his day, that the church had lost her focus on her nature, so where she comes from, her origin, her task, what she's supposed to be doing, and the message that she's supposed to be preaching. Now, if you're anything like me, you feel that same way today. Seems to me people have never been more confused about what the church is supposed to be spending its time on and doing. Am I right? Most of you that are in here come from some background where you went to churches oftentimes that grieved you and broke your heart. Some of you come from churches where you, you faced a pastor who morally failed. Others of you come from places where God saved you and then you languished for a number of years because no one fed you the Word of God. Uh, some of the other churches you went to and you thought you were busy in ministry, but you come to find out you were spending your time on a lot of stuff that God says not to spend His time on. People are confused about the nature of the church, her task and her mission, and what she's supposed to be doing. And the church of Jesus Christ, beloved, it's supposed to be understandable. We're supposed to know what we're going to spend our time on. For example, the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be pure and spotless. But what do we find today in lots of churches? Pragmatism, worldliness, and scandal at the highest level. The church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be a place that challenges impurity and removes immoral people like Acts 5. But instead, you see the church becomes a refuge for, place, for people that are flourishing in their sin and they can come into the church and find safety even while they're unrepentant in their sin. Acts 5, as we'll see in the coming weeks, they remove those people from the church. The church is supposed to reflect her Lord, full of love and sacrifice, interdependent relationships, right? Where we lean on one another, we serve one another, we pool together resources. And the church today, doesn't it seem like so many churches are full of selfishness, independence, and infighting? The church is supposed to commit herself to teaching the apostles' doctrine, to shedding worldly wisdom, 
And so many churches, if you're like me, that I attended in my life, Sunday mornings are really just a more cheesy reflection of Saturday night. (laughs) They're trying to make Sunday morning kind of like it was Saturday night, but not exactly like Saturday night because we can't be exactly like that. But we sure want you to be comfortable because we know what you were doing Saturday and we don't want Sunday to be too much of a contrast. Beloved, I'm telling you what, the book of Acts and the New Testament, if, if Jesus Christ, just think about this, think of Revelation 2 and 3 where Jesus comes down and takes an audit of churches, right? Everyone's familiar with those letters? Our pastor's been teaching them. If Jesus Christ were to come and take an audit of the churches in our day and all he did was use Acts 2 verse Acts 5, I'm telling you what, friends, he would hold, he would go to those buildings that call themselves churches, and he would say to them, if you're going to call this a church, and you're going to say this is about me, here's an eviction notice. You must leave because you don't represent what I say a church is. You've got to go if we're going to call this a church. And then I'll bring real believers and real fellowship and real godliness and real preaching to this building where you happen to meet. If you just were to look at Acts 2 to Acts 5, Acts 2 where the church is born, and Acts 5 where you really get your first taste of church discipline. If you were just to run New Testament churches through that grid, you would find where you could take people to help them understand the church. And it's crucial for us to understand this because the church is the the pillar and support of the truth. It's the church of the living God. So here's what's sweet about this passage in Acts 2. We are coming into the day of Pentecost where Luke wants us to see how the church is born. And here's what's sweet. I mean, this is unique. Some people say Acts 2 is maybe the most exciting chapter in the New Testament. Acts 2 and 3 and on. But really, Acts 2 is phenomenal because you have this spectacular, unique event. Listen, never to happen again in all of human history in one sense. Where God from heaven is going to look down and send His Spirit and birth the local church. And that church is going to result, it's going to result in the birth of that church after He preaches and people get saved. They're going to meet on their first Sunday. And they're going to gather together and they're going to worship. And you know what they did on their first Sunday? Oh, it was so innovative. They listened to preaching. They responded to preaching. They prayed. They fellowshiped. They went and got a meal together after church. And then when they went into their first week of body life, they pooled together resources to see how they could serve and minister to one another. Local church life. So we today, some 2,000 years later, are meeting on a Sunday, aren't we? We're meeting here hearing the Word of God. This is a fellowship group. You're going to fellowship with one another. You're going to hear the Apostles' doctrine. You're going to hear preaching. You're going to hear teaching. The Spirit moves through His Word to convict you and challenge you. And then you may go after church here and go get a meal together and break bread. And then we heard today about needs being met and pooling together resources. There's a move coming and there's this coming and we have a lunch together. That's local church life. That is what it was designed to be. But Acts 2 is where you see that unfold. I love this because one thing you can't miss in Acts 2 is this. Man can build buildings. Man can have marketing campaigns. Man can think he's an architect of how to build a a church. But only God can plant churches. God plants churches. So if you're taking notes, all of Acts 2, 1 to 47, is going to be one outline. Acts 2, 1 to 47 is one outline. I had Tim email it out. Robert, he can put it up there if you want. But here it is. It's the birth of the church. Hold on, I'm having trouble here. Luke displays the birth of the church through eight stunning scenes. Luke displays the birth of the church through eight stunning scenes. And you say, okay, 
We're going to be diving into this historical narrative. And you may ask, why is this so significant to me? Because, beloved, as I told you before, anytime somebody deviates from Acts 2 and they move away from what God has created, they've put their fingerprints on God the architect and what He has built. And if you smudge God's architectural drawing for the church, it starts to look a lot less like what God wanted and what man has made, right? So this passage of Scripture was intended by Luke. So think about it. Every church that was planted and every church that was born and from Ephesus to Philippi to Corinth and all the churches that explode, they would have gone back to the model, to the birth of the church. And they would have said, we don't want to deviate from what God has created because to deviate from what God has created is to say to God, hey God, we really appreciate the way you designed and made the church, but we think we can improve on it. It's the height of arrogance to change a philosophy of ministry to do what you want rather than what God says we should do. Amen? So what we have here is the birth of the church through eight scenes. Eight scenes. And so basically what you have, if you want to kind of lay it out in your mind, scene one, the Spirit explodes from heaven on those sitting down. And then it ends with Verses 42 to 47, body life exploding and they meet on the first Sunday. So when you come to Acts 2, you have to realize Acts 2, 1 to 47, is a half a day. <laughs> so don't think, oh, I'm going to hear this one message a day and four more messages. Gonna be, we're going to be in a half a day period here for a while, okay? Acts 2, 1 to 47, eight stunning scenes. So let's just start. I'll start with them. The first one. The Spirit explodes from heaven upon those sitting down. And every time I, make a scene, I say a scene, here's what I want you to think in your mind. The purpose of this is for this all to culminate in the birth of the first church and the gathering on their first Sunday. Okay? Acts 2. Notice what he says. I'll start by reading verses 1 to 4. When the day of Pentecost had come, they, that is the apostles, were all gathered together in one place. And suddenly... Immediately upon them there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves and they rested upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak to one another in tongues as if the Spirit, because as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So, scene one, here it is. The Spirit explodes from heaven upon those sitting down. You may say, okay, why did you say the Spirit explodes upon those sitting down? Well, just look at the, the, as we begin. And suddenly, verse 2, there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. You think, why would Luke put a detail in there like they're sitting down? There's a lot of details Luke could put in. When you're studying narrative, you ask yourself the question, why would this author put this detail to help us understand this portion of Scripture to help us have the convictions we need? Well, beloved, is what you're about to see is Luke is making a point that, that they were not sitting there praying, saying, Lord, send the Spirit, though they were anticipating it. A prayer pose would have been, they would have been kneeling down, they would have been lying down, they would have been prostrated. Those would have been the types of poses for praying. Sitting language is, they were fellowshipping. They were talking. It'd be like the break between service. When we have that 20-minute break, when we go from here to there and we're just casually talking, maybe there's some people sitting out there, or maybe it'd be like after church service. When we'd go and we'd sit down and we'd visit. This wasn't a time where they were going, Lord, send your spirit. We're ready. It's Pentecost, which I'll talk about in a moment. It's the day you should come. 
They weren't pining away, saying, God, come right now. They were fellowshipping. They were waiting. They were trusting the Lord. And you say, how do we know that? Because Jesus told them to go and wait. Look back at verse 1. He said to them, I mean, excuse me, chapter 1, and look at verse 4. Gathering them together, the same group, He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which He said, and you heard from me, John baptized with water, but I'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now we know, as we studied through chapter 1, that they were praying, there was preaching, there was studying together, there was fellowship. And so Luke's capturing, this was a moment not where they were praying, there wasn't a sermon going on. They were, you might say, bystanders to what was about to happen. The Spirit was about to explode from heaven upon them, and they were just sitting there fellowshipping. You say, why is that so important? Because it it highlights something very key as we walk through the rest of this. It highlights that it wasn't some man-generated event. It wasn't, you couldn't go, oh look, look how hard the apostles were praying, and that's why the first church was born. Look at all the preaching that was happening that initiated all this. No, the Spirit of God from heaven, independent of human will, independent of human desire, in that moment, He just acted. It's a huge point. So notice... That's why we call it, the Spirit came upon them when they were sitting down. So notice, they were all sitting together in one place and they were fellowshipping. And it was the day of Pentecost. Does anyone know what Pentecost is? Anyone know what the day of Pentecost is? You remember? Pentecost? Anybody? So Pentecost was 50 days after the Passover. What was the Passover? Passover. Passover was a celebration of how God delivered them and took them out of Egypt and passed over and preserved them when He was going and killing the children uh, when He sent the Spirit because of Pharaoh's rebellion. Do you know what day Jesus was crucified on? Passover. <laughs> he was crucified on Passover. So what is Pentecost? Pentecost was 50 days for the Jew after the day they celebrated Passover. So here we are in this, remember, we had a 40-day seminar on the kingdom and then 10 days of waiting and then Pentecost comes. So now we're 50 days after Jesus' crucifixion. So they're sitting, it's the day of Pentecost. Do you know what happened on the day of Pentecost? In Jerusalem, you would have people coming from all over the globe, really, Jews, to come in and celebrate the first, giving their first fruits to the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Do you know how many Jews would come to Jerusalem on Pentecost? They say some one million Jews, scholars think, would ascend upon this city of Jerusalem. So imagine the scene, okay? You've got these... These 120 believers and these 12 apostles sitting in this upper room, they're waiting for the Spirit to come. And they're looking out their window and they're seeing an entire nation of Jewish people coming upon the streets, flooding the streets, the noise, the traffic, the crowd. Can you imagine what would have been in their hearts and their minds? They'd have said, they probably would have went to the window and said, look at all the Jews that are here. One million Jews coming still in their false worship still in the system of Judaism and they miss the Messiah. They miss the fact that we're up here remembering Christ from 50 days ago and He was crucified and they just show up as if it's a normal Pentecost where they're coming to celebrate the God of the Old Testament still looking forward to the coming Messiah, Jesus. 
But it wasn't a Judaism by faith, right? They had works. They had systems. They added some 680 laws to the Levitical system to add on to it to make themselves feel justified. So you've got to imagine the moment for these people here. They're looking out and seeing a sea of unbelievers steeped in false religion. <laughs> no doubt they would be burdened. I'm sure some were think- thinking, this might be a really good day for the Spirit to come. <laughs> If you said the Spirit's going to come and that's what's going to start the birth of the church, this seems like a premier time, Lord. (laughs) The day of Pentecost, beloved, is a fulfillment of God's promises to send the Spirit, but they didn't know it was going to be Pentecost. And in fact, look at all the Jews that were there at this time. Look at verses 8 to 11 that descended upon them. And how, look at them, you've got... Um, Parthians and the, the Medes and the Elamites and the Mes- uh, Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and pa- uh, Pamphylia and Egypt and districts of Libya around Cyrene and the visitors of Rome, both Jews and proselytes. And look at this, all the way up into Greece, Cretans and Arabs, and we hear them in their own tongues. So you had people coming from all over to come to Pentecost. And you may think, why were Jews also spread out? This is significant too. If, the, if Acts 1.8 says the gospel, look at Acts 1.8, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, right? And you shall be my witnesses. Where first? In Jerusalem. Meaning the gospel was first going to go to the Jews, then to the Samaritans, then to the Gentiles. Does anyone know why the Jews were so spread out all the way out to Greece? Anybody know? I'll give you two dates, 586 and 722. Anybody know why the Jews were spread out? Persecution. In 722, the Assyrians thumped ten of the tribes. God sent the Assyrians to basically discipline them, to chasten them. And what happened to those ten tribes? What happened to them? They were scattered all over the globe, basically. And then, in 586, the Babylonians come and thump the remaining two tribes, Judea and Benjamin. That's the tribe of Judah. So let me give you some timestamps. Imagine the significance of this day. Like, don't miss this. So you've got 10 tribes of Israel back in 722 BC that are scattered across the globe. And then in 586, you've got the Babylonians coming, and the Babylonians capture them and bring them in. That's your time of Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah. 722 is your time of Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Isaiah more. Okay? So imagine how long. God's people, the Jewish people, have been in rebellion coming up to this point. Here we are in 33 AD, 50 days after Christ has been crucified, and they're coming again like they do every year in their false worship. This is a significant day, a unique time, a -a once-in-a-lifetime event for what God is about to do. So now watch this. With that stage set, with all that going on, thinking about the significance leaning up to that day, I mean, just just for a second, just stop and think about if you're a, a Jewish person in this time and God saves you in the early church, you would look back and think, wow, how patient was God with my people all the way up to this time when He finally came and acted in Acts 2. And if you're a Gentile, you'd think, wow, look how long God was patient before He did what He did in Acts 2. What a patient, kind, loving God. 
Notice what it says in verse 2. Suddenly, shockingly, unknown to them, a jolting moment, there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled everywhere where they were sitting, and it appeared to them as if there was tongues of fire distributing themselves. Let me stop there. It says a noise like a wind and tongues like fire. So, imagine this. He's not saying there was, a, there was, there was a, uh, an actual event where a storm came, right? When we think wind, what happens? Uh, a huge storm comes. I mean, how many of you have heard big hurricanes? And a hurricane comes through. When you hear the wind in a hurricane, it is intimidating, isn't it? It's whistling by and you hear the sound of it. It's roaring. How many of you have seen a, you know, a fire that you know, shoots sparks out and they snap and they pop in the air? Some of the firefighters in here. The sound of that can be intimidating. Or a lightning bolt that strikes right next to you and it shocks you. Well, imagine having those sounds like a rushing wind and like, like lightning bolts striking, happening, but no storm, <laughs> no fire, no bombs gone off. Nothing's happened. All you have is this room full of people and this ascends upon them. Imagine if that happened in this room right now. And it was so loud that you have a million people down in the street and people come sprinting over to see what happened. So think about how loud it must be to have that kind of crowd noise and that kind of, that kind of commotion and to have floods of people. We know at least 3,000 people showed up. Why? Look down. In the passage, Acts 2, go down to verse 40, let's see here. Go down to verse 41. So this is the same scene after all this unfolds. So then those who had received His word were baptized, and that day they were added about 3,000 souls. So you've got this this event that happened of wind that no man could, could account for. You've got fire like lightning bolts coming down. This, is, this, this parallels Mount Sinai. And it's to such a degree, if you look back at the beginning of chapter 2, people come rushing over in shock to see it. Notice, look what he says there. Verse 4, And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in tongues. I'll, I'll talk about that in a moment. And the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout from every nation. And when the sound occurred, verse 6, look what happened. The crowd came together and were bewildered. It's a word for shocked. They were, they were literally trying to figure out how could there be this massive of a sound and these lightning bolt type actions and this wind blowing through but there's been no geographical I mean there's been no no shift in there's been no no shift in the weather there's been no there's been no 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 explosion there's, there's been no fire that's been set nothing why is Luke putting all these details think about it he wants it to be known for all the church from then on out that what happened here on the day the church was born was an act of God, human ingenuity, human architecture. No one could create this event. He wanted all those people rushing up and saying, I cannot account for this. This must be an act of God. This is God coming down and entering into His creation and penetrating what would be normal and creating an event like never before. You think, why fire? Hebrews 12.29 For God is a consuming fire. Why wind? It parallels the strength that God can bring to something, the force that He can bring in a moment. Listen to Exodus 19.18. It parallels it. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole 
mountain quaked violently. Beloved, you understand, when God acts and initiates an action like this, He wants to leave no room for anyone to be able to explain that man could have done this. None. He doesn't want to be able to say, well, it could have been this. Or... No, there was no storm, there was no fire, nothing. God came and He acted. And you know what's so unique about that? is it's a fulfillment of God's promise to them that He would send His Spirit. In fact, look back at Luke 3. It's been a, lo- a promise long coming. Look at Luke 3. Flip over to Luke 3 real quick. This is such an encouragement to think about what's being fulfilled on this day. Luke chapter 3. John the Baptist. Notice what John the Baptist says. Verse 16. John, speaking here, John answered and said to them, As for me, verse 16 of chapter 3, I baptize you with water, but one is coming mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. Listen. He will baptize you, look at it, with the Holy Spirit, and with fire. Acts 2 is a fulfillment of what was promised Jesus would do when He come. But you said, Jesus isn't here. This is the Spirit coming. Yeah, but what did Jesus tell them in Acts 1? I'm going to go up to heaven and I'm going to send down my Spirit. And when I send down my Spirit, He's going to be the helper. So I go up and He's going to come down with permanent residency. So it's fulfilling all of these promises in this moment. So back to Acts 2. This is so sweet. Now watch what happens. And remember, each one of these events is barreling towards the preaching of the Word, the converting of 3,000, and the church meeting. But God starts out by saying, I don't want you to imagine man could generate this. This had to come from me. I am the only one that can plant a church. I create the church. I birth the church. I am the designer of the church. Do not deviate because I came down from heaven to start this whole thing. So for you to do church differently than how I'm saying you're to do it when I started it is to say to heaven that was an insufficient method that you brought. An insufficient birth. Watch this. Look back at the passage. There's a rushing wind filled the whole house. They were sitting, verse 3, and there appeared to them tongues as if they were distributing themselves and resting on each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And He began to speak with other tongues as if the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, let's stop for a second. Notice that little little language there where He says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, let's stop for a second. When you hear about the Holy Spirit, just, just tune in with me for a second. You, you need to understand this. The Holy Spirit is spoken about. He becomes a premier character in the book of Acts. He comes up about 56 times or something in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit comes on the scene, and you have to understand how the Holy Spirit's operating when He comes in the, in the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament. So there's really about four ways you see the Holy Spirit show up and come to His people, and they all happen in Acts 2. But let me just give them to you up front. Just think about this. This will make sense to you. So this, when the Spirit comes, and the Spirit comes down to His people, He's got kind of four roles. There's an indwelling, right? What's the Spirit do when He indwells? 
permanently comes into the believer's life and causes rebirth and makes them a Christian, makes them born again. So the Spirit comes for the act of conversion. The Spirit comes to, the Spirit comes to change the heart. If you want to reference, Acts 2.37 in our passage. The Spirit comes and saves people. The Spirit also comes and seals people. You guys remember the language of Ephesians 1.13. The Spirit comes as a seal of a stamp of approval. You're acceptable to God because I've sealed myself upon you. So you've got the indwelling ministry and the sealing ministry. The sealing ministry happens with the indwelling ministry at the same time. Ephesians just expands it. That happens in our passage because when God saves you, He seals you. But then you've got the walking in the Spirit or being full of the Spirit. How the Spirit's being used for sanctification, right? You know, like Ephesians 5. Walk in the Spirit. Be being filled by the Spirit. Or here's a couple for you. Acts 6.3. The deacons were full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Acts 6.5. Stephen was full of the Spirit and of faith. So you've got, just think about it already. You've got indwelling and sealing. Conversion. Let's put that over here. You've got walking in or being filled with sanctification, your ongoing process of living a holy life and submitting yourself to the Spirit's Word. Spirit's empowering you. But then you've got a fourth usage of the Spirit. And they all happen here. Because this is the Spirit's role in Acts 2 changes from all the rest of human history and it becomes a permanent resident in their hearts and begins to work in all of these ways. Now, not all of them are permanent, as we'll see. But there's a fourth way the Spirit works. So we've got indwelling. Right? We've got sealing. We've got walking in or being full of. And then the last one, filling. What is the filling with the Spirit? The filling with the Spirit is the temporary role of when the Spirit invades a person's life, takes over who they are, and ensures that God's will is going to be done exactly how He wants it to be done. They become filled with the Spirit. Some of you may come from charismatic backgrounds where they say, oh, we just pray for that second filling of the Spirit. Well, and they go, we just go to Acts 2. And I just want to say, in Acts 2, they're sitting down. <laughs> they're not praying for it. They're not asking for it. God acts and moves upon them. <laughs> but the filling of the Spirit is when God comes and says, I'm going to take over your faculties and for a unique moment, a unique season in history, I'm going to have you carry something through that needs to be done in a miraculous way. And the purpose of the filling, listen to this, the purpose of the filling is to show all the people there that God is among us. And so, look at what the special ministry of the filling of the Spirit does here. Notice. The Spirit comes bursts forth like lightning bolts in the room, fire comes, wind comes, and appeared to them as tongues. He distributes tongues to them, and it rested upon them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And look at verse 4. They began to speak in other tongues, and the Spirit was giving them utterance. The exact words, the exact content He wanted to give them. Now think about this. Look at verse 5. There were Jews in Jerusalem, devout men. By the way, devout men? He's not saying believers. He's saying people committed to their false system. And look at it. Every nation under heaven was there. Verse 6. All of these nations came together and they were bewildered. Look at verse 6. They were literally in shock. You should stop there. When you see a word like bewildered, when you see a, a group of people show up and you go, they are literally disarrayed. They're in a frenzy. They cannot get a category for what just happened. You should ask why. And here's what he says. Here's why. Because each of them was hearing the apostles them speak in his own language. Then Luke doubles down. They were amazed, verse 7. They were astonished, saying, 
What in the world is going on? Aren't these Galileans? Stop. That's our second scene. That's our second scene. So if you just want to keep taking notes and following us, the first scene was the Spirit comes upon those who are sitting down. And now the second scene is, is so sweet. Because the second scene is talking about the Spirit coming and giving them language, biblical truth, in languages they did not know. I'm looking for my outline point. <laughs> the Spirit empowers men to preach in foreign languages. Now I want you to think about something. You may go, why was there so many people here with foreign languages? Just ask yourself for a second. Just back up. If this was such a significant event, why was there so many people there from different languages? Well, remember, the Jews were spread out. And you've got to understand, at this time, wherever you lived, you learned a, a dialect that was native to where you were at. So, typically you'd have Greek and, and Hebrew and Aramaic, and then there might have been some Latin, would have been some larger categories of, of uh, languages if you lived in Jerusalem. As you spread out, the farther you went out, wherever you went, wherever you were born, the origin you came from, there was a, there was a dialect that was native to your people. It was native to your town. Notice he says, look back in here, verse 7, they were astonished. They're speaking like Galileans. And then, look at this. It says, um, uh, uh, speaking the mighty, uh, he said, they were speaking, I'm looking for it, they were speaking, oh, verse 8, and each one of them was speaking in own language to which we were born. He's saying, not only were they speaking the language of these other people, but they were speaking it the way they would have spoken it in the perfect precision, in the exact dialect, as if they were a native to their land. So just imagine something. What if I came up here and, and I had, let's just say, um, you know, someone that was you know, fluent, I was thinking in, in, I mean not fluent, their first dialect and they only spoke German. And then you had someone that only spoke Portuguese. And you had someone that only spoke French. And you had someone that only spoke Chinese. And you had someone that only spoke Japanese. And they were all up here. And we're all talking, and I'm talking, and they have no idea what I'm saying. But all of a sudden, this massive scene happens and 12 of you stand up and in their native tongue, you start preaching to them about the glory of God and about the character of God in their dialect from where they're from in the exact way they would have spoken it with the exact precision as if you were from their native land. Wow. Now think about that. We, we talk about tongues today and we have all these different ideas. Tongues is someone having the capacity to speak in the original language of the person, the language they did not know, a dialect they did not know, and be able to deliver truth to them. And then have a translator to make sure it's accurate, which we'll, we'll get into tongues later. But think about this scene. You say, what was the content they were preaching? Look at verse 11. They were speaking the mighty deeds of God. Don't you think that's irony? These Jews showed up to thank God for all the mighty deeds He had done in all of history since He saved them from in Passover. They showed up to worship God and give Him glory for all His deeds. And all of a sudden, a bunch of Galileans, notice what He says there, that they were, they were Galileans that were here. That means they were people not native to their tongue. Fishermen. Uh, people that, that should not have been able to speak their language. And they said, 
These Galileans are preaching to us about the deeds and the character of God. Now, don't you think, if you're a Jew that doesn't speak, that, that you know they don't speak your language, and they preach to you in your language, and they tell you about the deeds of God, that in that moment, that should have just humbled those Jews in that moment. Think about it. In that moment, they're hearing in their own language someone documenting the character of God to them in a language that they knew that person did not know, in a dialect they did not know, speaking it as good as if they were with, from their homeland. Sadly, it didn't soften them, as we'll see in a moment. Let's just back up for a second, though, before we go to the next point. point. And I just want you to think about something. You've got a supernatural event from heaven where fire comes down and wind comes down and fills up this whole place. Then you've got the Spirit of God empowering these people to speak in tongues in a language that was not their own with the exact clarity as if they were from that place. What is Luke's point in these first couple verses? He's saying to the church, all through human history, that when the church was born, when it was created, when it was ordained, when it was orchestrated to come to be, it was not like a couple guys got together and said, hey, let's kind of do church, let's figure out what we should do, let's kind of plan it out, as if man could create this. He's making the point that God is the one that burst the church. God is the one that created the church. He is the architect. Do not deviate. A supernatural event birthed the first church. And we might say by implication, every true church reflects the same supernatural work of the Spirit changing lives, the preaching of the Word, sanctification as people, etc., etc. But the point here is that the God of the universe tells us what church should be like. Guys, don't believe in our day that this their idea that you can kind of do church however. Certainly you can apply principles differently. It's not as if every principle is going to be applied differently. Some churches might do Sunday school classes. Some churches might do fellowship groups. Some churches might have a little bit shorter sermon or a longer sermon. These things are decided by godly men in different places. Churches grow in these things. But imagining that the key marks that show up in Acts 2, like the preaching of sound doctrine, the holiness of people, the spending yourself and sacrificing and gathering together of resources, the power of the Spirit to change heart and create new life. Then you get to Acts 5 and church discipline, removing immoral people, removing impure people, preaching for sanctification. Don't imagine that all of a sudden you just came to a church and, oh, this church came up with that way. They do it this way and that church does it that way. No, by no means. Luke wanted everybody to know God created the church. He says what it's supposed to do. Do not deviate. A supernatural event came down from heaven to put a seal on it that you should not go away from what God says church looks like. And we will see at the end of this that they meet on the first Sunday and they worship, preaching, teaching, fellowshipping, gathering, praying. And then they go out and they evangelize. So, 1 Corinthians 3.10 is an interesting passage. I just want you to listen to it. Here's what he says about churches and why you don't want to deviate from what God said we should do. According to the grace of God which is given to me, like a wise master builder, here's what Paul says, I laid a foundation on Christ's foundation, on an Acts 2 foundation, and another is building on the foundation that I laid on top of what Christ laid. Listen to this. But each man must be careful how he builds. 
That's a ministry passage. Then he says, if you build on another foundation than the one Christ has built, you can show up to him in heaven and show him all that you've done and it'll burn up like wood, hay, and stubble because it was built on the wrong foundation. There's a whole lot of people that are going to show up to the judgment, even believers saying, God, look at all that we did for you. Look at all this man-generated stuff. Look at all these, this big show, this hype. Look at all these people we were able to gather. And God's going to say, you did that by human ingenuity, human architecture. It was pragmatic. It was self-made. You, you put the dancing bears up and you gave them cotton candy and you, you gave them an easier, softer message to come to and they showed up and they filled your building and you did not build on my foundation, burn up. You know, I, I watched some time back a, a church a guy by the name of Stephen Furtick, a so-called pastor, and he had this church called Elevation Church. Church. You can go watch it. Go watch the video. And in the video, someone sent it to me so I watched it. And he talks about the birth of Elevation Church. I'm like, oh, this ought to be good. How, how was Elevation Church born? So all these people start giving testimony and they say, you should have seen it. It was Easter Sunday. And we had nobody come into our church. So what did we do? We gathered all of our resources together and we rented a helicopter. And then we had everybody show up at a ball field instead of at a building and we dropped eggs everywhere, thousands of eggs. And all these families brought their kids and all these people scooped up all these eggs and Elevation Church was born. Wood, hay, and stubble. It's nothing. It's worthless. It was man done. It was generated by man. It was a man-generated technique. Preaching of sound doctrine, faithfulness to the Word, the Spirit working through His Word, the sanctification of His people, the discipleship of God's that all unfolds. That's wood, hay, and stubble. It's worthless. Now watch this. Scene 3, and our time's gone. Unfolds, it flies off the page. Notice what happens after He preaches to those people. The crowd's magnetic response to the preaching. Why do I say magnetic? Sometimes you preach, and what happens? People soften. And they come. The magnet draws them in. Sometimes you preach and what happens? People harden and the magnet pushes them away. You have two responses. You get the perplexed and the mocker. Notice, I've called these categories the soft but still unbelieving and the hard-hearted and mocking. Notice what he says there. Go down to verse 12. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? That's category one. They're soft but perplexed. That's probably like your evangelism. You preach to people, they may not respond to the gospel, but they're soft. They're inquiring. They're listening. They're perplexed. That's interesting. I'd like to hear that again. I wonder what that is. There's this, there's this I'm not rejecting this yet. I'm interested. I'm wondering, but I'm still in my unsaved condition. But their, their question kills me. Look at this. Look what it says. What does this mean? I want to be like, guys, what do you think it's mean? Fire just came from heaven and a storm filled the room and people just preached in your language that they didn't know about anymore. It means God's here. <laughs> but they're like, huh, interesting. Huh. It's like someone that sees your life transformed by the power of the gospel and sees your conversion and they go, what's happening in your life? That's interesting. And you're like, God saved me. Yeah, tell me more of that. <laughs> God transformed my heart and made a dead heart live and I used to worship myself and now I worship Him. Huh, what's that all mean to you? Like, don't you get it? No, they're still unbelieving. You know what? A whole bunch of those people are about to get saved in the coming weeks. And then there's another group. The hard-hearted and mocking. Look at the next group. Verse 13. 
But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. Oh, that makes sense. Yep. That's what happens when people get drunk. That totally makes sense to me. Sweet wine is alcohol. Oh, that makes sense. I've seen lots of people get drunk and speak in foreign languages that they never knew before with perfect precision from a land they had never been to with absolute clarity as if they were from there. Oh, that's it. (laughs) You're like, are you kidding, guys? You know what, though? The hard heart mocks the authority of God's word. They did not want to believe, so they made up something that would excuse their guilt. Notice. They were mocking and saying, you're all a bunch of drunks. You know what happens? That group? God saves 3,000 of them in the coming weeks. The mockers and the inquirers. The soft and the hard. God wrecks a bunch of them and saves 3,000 of them. In fact, in the coming scenes, our time is gone. But look at what Peter says in verse 14. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, Peter gets up on a podium, maybe he stood on something like this, and with a raised voice he declared to them, Men of Judea and all who are in Jerusalem, listen to my words. And this boy preaches a thundering sermon that we will look at in a few weeks. The point of all this, guys, is don't miss Luke's point. God plants the church. He creates a church. Don't tamper with it. Don't mess with it. The church is not up for grabs. God tells us what the church is supposed to be. And the Spirit is the one that confirms all of that. Let's pray. Lord, so thrilling. I cannot wait to get to Peter's sermon. Lord, I cannot wait to see your gracious mercy when you save 3,000. I can't wait to hear Peter exhort them to leave the culture and join the church. And I can't wait to see the first Sunday of worship. Lord, protect us from the, the wood, hay, and stubble idea that fills the church today that we can just do church how we want and you will not care. That is foolish. You care very much about the church because you birthed it. Lord, it seems today like we're a, we're a bunch of adults that have, that have grown up and forgot our childhood in the church. We don't want to do that. We want to honor you. We want to protect your church. We want, to, we want to please you in it. You hate false worship. The entire Old Testament is full of you chiding God's people. And here, a million false worshipers show up. And you mercifully extend truth to them. Lord, help us not to become proud, but help us to be vigilant to protect this, this perfect model you've created by your mercy and power. And thank you for seeing, showing us the power of your spirit. In your name, amen. You guys are dismissed.